You're listening to Marist Connections, a podcast produced by the Alumni Office, which highlights members of the Marist family, including our alumni, students, faculty, staff, coaches, and many more. Hi, guys. I'm Amanda Benton, Assistant Director of Alumni Relations at Marist and a graduate from the class of 2011. For the fourth season of Marist Connections, we're bringing you stories of alumni and faculty authors and their experiences with writing and getting published. Today's guest is Allison Novak, the author of three books on the intersections of digital engagement, political communication, and the current age. How are you doing? Hi, Allison. Hi, I'm well. How are you? Good. Thank you. So Allison Novak is an associate professor at Rowan University in the Edelman College of Communication and Creative Arts. She graduated from Marist in 2010 with a bachelor's in communication and holds a PhD in communication, culture, and media from Drexel University. She specializes in public engagement with media, public policy, and politics. Allison is the author of three books, Media Millennials and Politics, Network Neutrality and Digital Dialogic Communication, and The New Review Economy. Her work is featured in Wired Magazine, BBC Radio, and NBC News. Her most recent book, The New Review Economy, Third-Party Review Sites, Reputation, and Neoliberal Public Relations in the Digital Age, examines third-party review sites in order to understand how users and organizations use global reviews in the 21st century. Chronicling businesses who sue clients for leaving negative reviews, activists using ELP as a form of protest, students relying on Rate My Professor to select classes, and companies who have paid to have negative reviews scrubbed from the internet, Allison's book illustrates the complicated yet important role of third-party review sites and the impact they have on the global economy. So thank you again, once again, for joining us. We're excited to talk about this book. Um, before we jump into it, how have you been dealing with the pandemic over the last 14 months now? Yeah, so far it's been pretty good. I think um, we've been healthy, which is really great. And now we're, we're fully vaccinated. So I think that's been, you know, much more like soothing and less anxiety provoking. Um, so I'm really looking forward to being able to see friends and family this summer that I haven't really seen since I've been teaching on campus for the past year. Um, but yeah, overall healthy and, and happy. Good, good. Glad to hear it. So most of the, our listeners have probably used a third party review site at some point. Can you give us a brief introduction into how these came to be and when they really started to gain momentum? Yeah, sure. So I would say about 85% of the public has at some point in time relied on a third party review site. And the most common of those are things like Yelp or Google reviews, basically the thing that pops up first when you type in the name of a business. And usually it's even on the right side of your screen in Google, it kind of like pops itself out. So it's easy to see. Um, and so these are um, not new. They've been around for, at this point, decades, um, but they definitely gained popularity in the early 2000s. Um, if you remember, if you're like a, a throwback name, the site ePinions, um, which was really popular in the early 2000s, um, it was kind of the same thing. It allowed people to post reviews of products, mostly software and digital things too. Um, and then that kind of slowly evolved into what we know today as Google reviews. Um, and then obviously Google's main competitor in the re review space is Yelp. Um, and so those two platforms today are just really prolific spaces for people to turn to when they have to make a purchase decision. Um, and they are very, very common for people to make those choices. Um, a lot of times people will turn to them when they're first exploring purchasing something or going to a business. 
And then they also turn to them when they're just about to make a decision. They want, you know, reinforcement that that's a good choice to make. Um, so today they're, they're pretty powerful because a lot of people do rely on them. Great, thank you. So what interested you in this topic? How did you decide that this was something that you wanted to make a center of your research and something that you wanted to write a whole book about? Yeah, my, my interest in it started probably about five years ago um, when there was a really famous case of a lion that was poached um, in an African canned hunt. Um, and most people sort of remember Cecil the lion. Um, he was sort of, he was first shot at one point inside of a wild um, park in Africa. And then an American hunter sort of um, pursued him for an entire day and eventually killed him as a part of this hunting experience. And Cecil was pretty beloved in that space. And so when the world found out that Cecil had died, um, there was a lot of outcry against this hunter who turned out to be a dentist in the United States. And because of um, his actions, people turned to Yelp and they posted a lot of really negative comments and also using a lot of satire in Yelp um, to really damage his online reputation as a form almost as protest or advocacy against what he had done. Um, and so my interest sort of emerged out of that in Yelp's response, which was basically to pull down all those fake reviews and to say, this is not really what this space is for. Um, and it was, my interest was in sort of the public's reaction to that, as well as other businesses and how they were responding. And so I initially was interested in that part of it. And then also about Two years ago, I was writing a book on net neutrality and Yelp was actually a really big um, corporate advocate for net neutrality. Um, so in 2017, they actually helped organize the day of protest to, to support the net neutrality policies in the United States. Globally, they've supported these policies in places like Australia and Europe as well. Um, and so they sort of reappeared and re, you know, fired my interest at that point too, because they do have these, you know, really intense political aspirations on certain policies. And so again, just driving the importance of how relevant they are as an organization. So you mentioned the the case with Cecil um, and how those negative reviews kind of come into play. And that one was a form of activism, but just in general, a negative review can truly harm a company's image. Can you give some examples of how businesses can respond to that or deal with it? Absolutely. So organizations, um, oftentimes, especially small businesses that don't have reputations built on huge advertising budgets or having multiple locations for people, if you're a small business, the reviews that you have matter. They are the thing that people will often look at before they decide if they come and buy something from you or hire you for a service. So if your reviews are negative, that can have a huge impact on your bottom line because it can turn people away from your business. So over the past 20 years, because this has been around for so long, businesses have found ways to adapt to this. They don't just have to sit there and kind of take it. They actually can do things to improve their reputation and deal with some of those negative reviews. And they, of course, can you know go a standard route of asking um, something place like Yelp to take down a review. If they think there really is um, cause for being inaccurate, or if they think it's particularly vengeful out of something out of context, um, they can pursue a really traditional path of just 
you know, making case and having it deleted. But then there's also a lot of other methods that organizations can do. Probably the most ethical of those methods is they can engage in a dialogue with the reviewer. So most platforms allow the organization to private message or respond to negative posts. And we actually know that those conversations can be really productive. So they both help that person feel better about that organization. And oftentimes they will post replies and, you know, um, change their initial review. And then they also help that organization make sense of what happened and maybe change business practices. So that's like the best case scenario. One of the less ethical approaches that an organization can take is they can actually pay some of the third party review sites to delete or like hide those negative reviews. And I will say that most third party review sites don't publicize this as an option. And so there's been a lot of um, legal cases that document and demonstrate that this is happening. But some of the bigger third party review sites actually claim that this isn't something that's uh, offered. So we call that scrubbing. It's when an organization will pay either direct money to the third party review site or they will buy advertisements on the third party review site. And in exchange, there's an understanding that those negative reviews will disappear. Um, and like I said, it's ethically murky. Legally, it actually has been upheld in several court cases. So even though from the public's perspective, that sounds horrible, legally, they're not actually doing anything wrong. It's just that it's something that publicly people will have a negative reaction to if it becomes really well known that that's a practice. That's interesting. Um, I like that it's been held up in court cases, you know, because yeah. you're like, oh, well, that shouldn't be allowed. But, you know, mm -hmm. legally, as far as the court is concerned, that that is something that businesses have a right to do. Mm -hmm. um, so speaking of court cases, I know that some of these have actually delved into lawsuits where companies have taken legal action against people who have written negative reviews for either libel or mm -hmm. for portraying them negatively or untruthfully in some way. Um, has that, can you explain kind of how that's played out? Absolutely. So other organizations, especially if they feel like they're not making progress in either of those two methods to respond to negative reviews, they can actually sue an individual who's made the postings um, and they can do it particularly under like the defamation category of libel, which is a sort of written slander or um, documented slander. Um, and so what that means is they have to go to court and basically prove and provide evidence for a couple of things. One, they have to actually prove that what was written and was inaccurate. They also have to prove that the person they're suing is the right person. And in a digital space, that's not always easy because people use pseudonyms or usernames that aren't necessarily themselves. Um, and then they also have to improve some type of intentionality. And that's a state by state requirement. But they often have to say, you know, this was intentionally malicious. They were trying to hurt my business. They were trying to cause damage. And then finally, they also have to prove that there was damage, that it's not just their feelings were hurt, that there was some sort of financial or reputational ramification from it. Um, and so we actually have seen several successful cases from this. Um, there have been organizations that have had uh, successful appeals and have had individuals ha have to pay retribution because of it. Um, and then we've also seen many unsuccessful cases. It's one of the most difficult things to legally prove. Um, and as a result of that, oftentimes these lawsuits are considered um, slap suits or strategic lawsuits that are attempting to um, document what might happen if somebody else was to do it. So, hey, like, don't say anything bad about us because look what we did to that guy over there. Um, and so that's 
somewhat problematic. A lot of uh, states are actually really anti-slap suit. They really don't like the courts being used for that purpose. Um, but it is something that's sort of emerging right now. Yeah, um, and I feel like that probably ties in with some of the advocacy part of it as well, where someone who may use a business and not necessarily be reviewing the actual services or the product, but reviewing a, an interaction or a belief system of an owner or a company. And does that come into play as well, where people are saying like, well, don't use this because they believe this thing or they vote this way or I saw this hanging there. Yeah. Um, part of that as well. Absolutely. Um, something that actually tends to happen uh, around presidential elections are when candidates go from town to town, they like, sometimes will eat at a restaurant and that'll be a photo op for them. And so depending on if you support that candidate or not, you may have a reaction to that person being in that restaurant. And people will sometimes turn to Google reviews, for example, to vent their frustrations that that candidate sat down at the restaurant that you like and ordered a meal and used it as a photo op. And so we actually see kind of um, following the campaign trail, just this like lineage of bad reviews that are left when people are frustrated by it. And then of course, there's also incidents um, where organizations have like an innately political um, identity to them. So for example, um, something like Glassdoor, which is a third party review site that allows former employees to review their employers. Um, so you, if you go and you take a look at, for example, the congressional offices, you will see former employees talking about the people who have taken over those congressional offices, especially when there's a transition of power. And so people tend to use that space as an advocacy space to advocate against or for what's now happening in those, um, in those offices. And as a result of that, it becomes sort of advocacy centered rather than just purely reviewing the labor that's going on in those spaces. So since these sites have so much opinion, and I mean, that's really what they're, they're based around, but how much of an opinion is credible? Should people be relying on these as much as they are? Do they tend to be accurate? Is there something, is there a better way to find out um, whether or not a place has quality product and quality service? Sure. I think the most common uh, thing I hear when people talk about these spaces is like, well, it's only the people who had a really bad experience or a really good experience, right? Those are the people who are going to be motivated to give a review. And in actuality, the average review that we see on a place like Yelp is actually two stars. So that's not actually true. We don't tend to see the extremes as much as we see the people who had a slightly positive or slightly negative experience. Um, and so they, in that sense, they are more credible than I think we sometimes give them credit for in that they, um, they're not extremes necessarily, but they can be. Um, and so there's a couple sort of key things to look for if you're like, is this a review a good one? Is this something I should trust? So the first thing to look for is, are there outliers within that? So um, is the average review, let's say four stars, which is the total average um, review that you see for most organizations on something like Yelp. So if you're looking at that, do you see um, people who are giving it five stars? Do you see people giving it a whole bunch of one stars? Those outliers can be super important. Um, and then the other thing to look at is sort of trajectory of reviews. So for example, did they get a whole bunch of negative reviews, but in the past like year, they've been positive. 
Um, sometimes we don't pay attention to when the reviews are posted for things, not realizing that a lot of business practices change in a short period of time. And that can really impact um, what you should rely on in terms of information. And then yes, of course, there are fake reviews. So organizations sometimes pay um, people to post um, you know, fake reviews that enhance their reputation or enhance their averages. Um, and organizations like Yelp and Google have gotten pretty good at identifying when those instances are. Um, so for example, if you're a person in California and all of a sudden you're posting reviews for places in Oklahoma and New Jersey and Maine, they'll flag it because they'll recognize that you're probably not jumping around the country like that, that you're posting reviews um, as in some sort of payment system. So you can rely a little bit on these platforms to identify those fake instances and they will actually give a pop-up too if they've identified any instances where they think they've been paying for reviews. So you'll know overall that that page might be compromised because they've found evidence in the past that this was a practice. So that's a lot of really good advice for the consumers who may be using these sites. What advice do you have for maybe the small business owner or someone from that perspective in managing and responding to reviews that come in or just getting their consumers to put reviews up in general? Yeah. I think one of the hardest things with reviews are that it can be really personal. If you have a small business and you get a bad review, that is like a really difficult thing to emotionally recognize. And so the first thing I would say is take some space from it, right? Because you do not want to respond emotionally. You do not want to have just a gut reaction. You want to be able to either address it in a tactful way or use that information to maybe correct a problem that's happening. Um, the nice thing about review sites are that most people, when they contribute to them, have what we consider this like neoliberal sense of giving back. They believe that when they post that negative review, they, they recognize that there can be some damage caused, but their true intention is oftentimes to help you do something better. So let's say you're at a restaurant and you have really bad service and you go on Yelp. Yes, there's a part of it that's venting frustration about that. But the other part of it is identifying like, hey, you have an issue in your dining room with the service that's being given. Let me tell you about it so that you can make a change and make somebody else's experience better. And I think that's a really helpful mental perspective to approach reviews with is to not say, this person's out to get me, they're a bad person. It's to say, okay, they are trying to tell me something that might make this better overall for other guests and long-term might have um, you know, rewards in it. That's great. That's a really healthy way of looking at reviews in general for anything. Um, so as a, as a professor and someone who's written this book, what is kind of, if you had to pick one or two takeaways as like the main thing that you hope a reader gets from this or your student gets from this, if this is something you're teaching, what are kind of those big bullet points that you think people should understand when thinking about third-party review sites and reviews in general? Sure. I think... The, the main focus is that these reviews can be really important spaces for people to build engagement with the organizations that they're giving their business to. So it's not just about somebody, you know, going online and posting information about their experience. 
it can actually be a really great thing to say, hey, this person felt so passionately about the experience they have in my organization. They've now translated that when they're at home and are now posting content. And so if you recognize that, that's a really deeply engaging uh, relationship that's forming there. And those spaces can be used to further that relationship, to further that engagement, to encourage people to come back, to encourage people to keep um, you know, giving you business. So I think that's the first thing is to not be afraid of those spaces and instead to see them as the space where you can engage your customers um, and, uh, and to you know, deal with that appropriately. And then I think the second thing to keep in mind is that also these spaces can be compromised, right? So there's many ways where businesses can artificially inflate their reviews. And although organizations are doing some things to try to combat that and make it seem as if they're more trustworthy, you should not necessarily take everything you see on those review sites, you know, as the Bible truth. Like it's gotta be, there has to be other things that you use to make your purchasing decisions because there, there are ways to manipulate those pieces of information. Great, thank you. So as I said in your introduction, this is actually the third book that you've written. Um, I guess kind of two questions here. Do you have plans for any future books? Is there something that you're interested in uh, researching? And what advice do you have for others who are looking to write? Yeah, I, um, I do. I am working on another book proposal. Um, so then this book, I feel like, is the child of a book, which is the child of a book. So my first project, which is like my actual main research area, is on generations and politics, um, and specifically looking at how tensions between generations um, oftentimes change the way that groups are able to actually participate in politics and what they think their own potential is. And so that book in 2016 got me to net neutrality, which is my second book, because that was one of the big policy areas that mattered between generations. Um, and so I studied that. And then this book came out of the net neutrality book. So I'm going back to my first topic. There's a long way of saying that I'm going back to talking about generational tension. And I'm specifically looking at um, how, especially between elections and political policy debates, we see generational tensions um, exposed and how digital media encourages us sometimes to um, find and vocalize frustrations with between the generations. So everything from hashtag okay boomer to looking at the current feud between millennials and Gen Z, um, looking at sort of how those things materialize and how that might impact our ability to actually participate in the political process. So when you wrote uh, your first book, the one about millennials and politics, Gen Z really wasn't a voting age yet. So you almost have an entire new generation yeah. now for the 2020 and then future elections. Mm -hmm. that you can yeah. yeah, I mean, Gen Z is a great, um, a great generation to look at because they, this was, this 2020 was probably their first generation where over 50% of them could really vote. And they voted like in large numbers, 60%, which is just incredible. No other generational group got close to that. And yet they got like no credit for it, which is really fascinating. We still think of them as like young and naive and disengaged, not really cued into politics. And yet they blew everybody else out of the water. So I think the book will also take a look at sort of why we characterize generations in that way um, and fail to recognize when they really are engaging in that, like in a sense that, uh, especially in a traditional way, like voting. 
That's great. It's wonderful. I know we both work at a college. So interesting to hear that the, you know, those Gen Z, those college students really are as engaged. Like, you know, you see it around campus, right? With yeah. the activism and you know they're getting out the vote and stuff. But to hear that it's like 60% and so much higher than all those other generations is really powerful. Yeah. yeah I think it's important. Like people think um, the baby boomers tend to of our current generational cohorts to be the ones we think of as the most politically active. But in the first elections, baby boomers can vote and they were coming in around like 40%, 45% at best. So like, it's really amazing to see this younger generation who doesn't have the identity as a political group, but really perform in outstanding ways, um, especially in a traditional way like voting, which we just don't give them the credit that they deserve. Wow. And then I guess circling bar back to part two of my question was if you have any advice for those who are looking to write or get published, if it's their first book or their third book or whatever. Yeah, um, I, I tend to write on topics that have to be published really fast. Um, policies that go out of business, lawsuits that, you know, could be overturned at any moment. So I think um, the, like my advisor gave me the best advice, which is like the best book is a done book, right? I mean, just getting things done helps you feel productive um, and also encourages you to take on the next project. So if you're somebody who's like sitting there and you're like a perfectionist and you just keep like toying with it, like at some point it's gonna feel really good to just say, you know what, this is done. If there's a typo in it, it's okay. It's, you know, it's not the end of the world. If I find out something later that I wish was in there, like it's really okay. It'll be, you know, okay to have it done and be able to walk away. That's great. So before we close out for today, would you actually mind reading us a short excerpt from the new review economy that we talked so much about? Sure. Um, so I'll read an excerpt from chapter five, um, which just talks about the lawsuits um, that sometimes come out of these sites. And um, this is one of the more well-known lawsuits. This is about a, a wedding photographer in Texas who sued her former clients because they did a lot of damage to her reputation and she ended up winning um, millions of dollars. So definitely um, one of the, the instances where that paid off for an organization. So um, I'll start. After months of an exhausting court battle between a wedding photographer and her former clients, Andrea Paletto came out victorious. Paletto sued newlyweds Neely and Andrew Moldovan for defamation after the couples mounted an intensive digital campaign designed to hurt her photography business. The couple, married just one year before, was unhappy because of a $125 charge for a cover photo on their wedding album. After weeks of arguing over the fee, which was explained in, her, in the contract signed before by the couple prior to the wedding, Paletta was ready to give in and pay for the charge herself. That was when she became aware of the Moldovans' attempts to hurt her reputation through traditional news interviews and negative posts on third-party review sites like Wedding Wire. In the wedding and special event industries, Wedding Wire, The Knot, and Zola are essential tools to connect brides and grooms with professionals such as photographers. Negative re reviews on these sites can be extremely costly, as Paletto quickly found out. With that, Paletto said the Moldovans ruined the reputation of her 13-year-old business almost overnight. She said in the following year, she only booked two weddings, a significant decline from her normal 75 to 100. Although Yelp intervened and removed some of the fake reviews posted by the Moldovans, other third-party review sites were reluctant and the negative reviews remained. Paletto said that the damage was permanent because of the variety of channels used by the couple. 
Paletto's case was widely covered because it served as a prime example of how organizations could regain control over negative reviewers and because it played into the anxiety of the site users regarding their own liability. Despite the growing number of lawsuits facing contributors to third-party review sites, the number of reviews on these sites continues to grow, demonstrating a willingness of contributors to accept the risks involved with posting. So can you be sued for a fake review? In short, yes. Although it's very rare, organizations can sue for defamation, libel, or slander, depending on their state laws. And in Texas, Paletto was on, in the, on the right side. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing a portion of the book with us, taking time out of your schedule to chat with us about the new review economy and also some of your other writings. Um, it was really great to have you. Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Of course. So for those listening, we hope you'll join us again next week as we continue our series highlighting different Red Fox authors. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you can keep in touch and know every time we post a new episode of Maris Connections. We will continue to bring you conversations with alumni as well as students, faculty, staff, coaches, and others essential to the Marist community. If you have suggestions for a future podcast theme or guest, please email maristalumni at marist.edu. You can also check us out on Facebook at Marist Alumni or Instagram with official official Marist Alumni. Um, have a great day, everyone.